Thanks for pressing play. In April of 2019, Michael Jurgens and his team planted the very first vineyards in the kingdom of Bhutan. Now, if you've never heard of the Bhutan, Google it and click on the images. It's spelled B-H-U-T-A-N. And what you'll see is a magical landscape, the legendary Himalayan mountains, and some of the most amazing architecture on planet Earth. Bhutan is a small country in South Asia. It's sandwiched between China and India near Nepal. And when you travel there, you actually fly by Mount Everest. Bhutan has been called things like the holy grail of travel destinations and the most unique travel destination in the world. And amongst other things, Bhutan is also famous for pioneering an idea, a concept they call gross national happiness. It turns out that measuring the happiness of the people in the country is as important as measuring the economy. And interestingly enough, Part of uh, gross national happiness is conservation of the environment. Another thing Bhutan is known as being a world leader in. Now, our guest today, Michael Jurgens, he's a senior partner at Deloitte. And he's also a super wine geek of the highest order. And on a trip to the Bhutan in 2016, to his amazement, he discovered there was no wine there. And that was in spite of the vast range of extraordinary micro, microclimates, uh, wonderful land and soil and farming in the country. What you're about to listen to is the real story of how Michael, by accident, connected with government leaders in this magic little country to become the founder of a new industry and is pioneering the last great wine frontier. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We are an award-winning, chart-topping dialogue podcast. And I think on this episode, you'll be inspired, amazed, and you're really going to want to have a glass of wine. Michael is outstanding, and this is a story like no other. Go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. Uh, everything we reference is, uh, is available there, uh, and more information on the country and so forth. That's at L-O-C-H-H. EAD.com. We're sponsored by my friends at NetSuite from Oracle. Check out netsuite.com slash different today and discover the power of the world's number one cloud ERP system. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. Now, hey ho, let's go. So, Michael, take me to the Bhutan. Uh, Bhutan is like one of the most special places on the planet. I mean, I just can't say enough about it. It's this, I don't know how much you know about it, but it's this little Shangri-La that's like tucked away in the Himalayas. And it's, it's hard to get to. It's because it's guarded by peaks on all sides. And so pretty much everybody left it alone for many, many years. And then... Um, What's the population, Michael? Do you know? Yeah, it's about 800,000. It's about the size of Switzerland. 41,000 square kilometers or thereabouts. And it's kind of pasted onto the side of the Himalayas. So at the bottom, it's maybe 500 feet in elevation. Um, and it's very jungly. And at the northern part, it's, you know, 27,000 feet. <laughs> so you get, you get these just crazy different climates. You know, think about going from jungle to glacier in, the si in a country the size of Switzerland. Wow. And the people there, you know, they have this concept called gross domestic happiness or gross national happiness. And they, they are less concerned about measuring economic growth and more about being happy, which I think is just an amazing way to live. And, um, you know, there it's the only carbon negative country on the planet. And the people there are, they want to grow. They want to evolve as, as people. They want to become modern but at the same time they want to preserve this traditional way of living and somehow they've been able to uh to to measure to to balance that and i'll, I'll tell you a story this is this is probably when i fell in love with Bhutan. so i was there i went there to run a marathon 
And so I'm running this marathon through the Himalayas and I get to about mile 20. And so, you know, mile 20 is a shitty time in a marathon. <laughs> you know, it's, I know. It's, I've done it once and that's the shitty point for sure. <laughs> that's where that's you, the, that's you, the shitty time. That's where so it's anyway, all so I'm, over. I'm running down this trail and I'm, I'm kind of getting it done, but I'm not crushing it. You know, you're at altitude. <laughs> um, and this little kid comes riding towards me and he's riding this little rattle trap of a bicycle that looks like he built it himself in metal shop. And he's riding towards me. And, uh, and I've been, you know, all over the world and you're, you're kind of used to, if you're in another country and a little kid comes towards you, that kid wants money or candy or both. And so this kid's coming towards me. I'm sitting there thinking like, I'm at mile 20 in the marathon. I, I, I got nothing for you, kid. I barely have anything for myself at this point. And the kid rides up to me and he rides past me. He turns around and he starts riding his bike next to me as I'm riding. And he starts cheering me on. He starts going, do your best. You can do it do your best. You can do it. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy's like, doesn't want anything for me. He's trying to help me. And so he does this for a while. And then he rides off down the path. And I, I see him right up and stop about a hundred yards up. And he goes into this little shaft that's like corrugated steel kind of cardboard looking shaft thing. And he runs inside and I go, me being the cynic, I'm like, ah, here we fucking go. He went to go get some trinket to sell me or something. And I get up to him and he's standing by the, the, the path and he's got this warm half full bottle of Pepsi and he's handed it to me. And he's like, you're very thirsty. You need something to drink. Here's my Coke. And I was like, dude, I, I can't take your Coke. Like th this is, you know, this is important to you. And like, I, I got a whole backpack full of stuff to drink. Like, don't worry about it. And I just, to me, that was so poignant and, and like, helping me understand like they truly don't give a shit about a lot of the things that that we're taught to give a shit about and what they care about is people and they care about living and being happy which is an awesome way to live i've been fascinated by the country for years and years quite a few years ago i did some volunteer work with the world wildlife fund and they've had operations in the Bhutan for a long time. And I've met at the time, the guy who was the head of their operations there, he was living in the Bay area at the time and he had run their operation there for a while and then come to the Bay area. And so I've sort of had this voyeuristic look at it. And of course I've seen videos and photos and all that, but I, I've not been, and it just looks like a physically enchanting place. And the people seem so fascinating because their orientation seems very different than ours. It's amazing to like, you want to believe that people like this exist in the world and you continue to be disappointed. You know, um, our, our current political scenario, notwithstanding, but it's, it's to me, it's, it's authentic. It's, it's genuine. And I've been there many times. And, and um, like when you, when I step off the plane in Bhutan, like the, there's just like this, energy but it's a serene energy if that makes sense and you just you kind of feel it in your body it's just kind of like a oh. yeah and it's, it's just amazing and i'm curious how they think about things like capitalism and entrepreneurship and of course you're now a wine entrepreneur in bhutan which of course i'm dying to uh, pop the hood on with you but how do they think about sort of you know, this sort of American idea of, of uh, the American dream and uh, improving your standing in the world and capitalism and things along those lines. So um, I, I would say, you know, from my experience, there is there is a youth community there that I think is now getting more exposure through the Internet and so on and so forth. So a lot of them are kind of moving out of the the farmland areas and they're moving towards the, the cities and they, they want to do something different. I, I gave a speech there to um, a group of like a young entrepreneurs group. And, um, and it was really interesting to find out about the projects that they were working on and this blend of, you know, how do we, how do we modernize, but how also do we keep our sense of culture. And I'll, I'll, I'll share one of the projects this one kid was working on because I think, just think it's awesome. So they, they grow some of the world's best crops in Bhutan, like the world's best mandarin oranges, the world's best cardamom. They, they grow really good stuff there, but you wouldn't know it because when you go to Whole Foods and you buy a little thing of cardamom, it doesn't say Bhutan, it just says cardamom. Anyway, they have challenges with, with wildlife. 
And one of the challenges that they have is monkeys. And by the way, as a grape grower, I'm worried about monkeys and how do I keep monkeys out of the vineyards? This is not, by the way, something that there's a lot of science around. <laughs> I've, I've called some of my colleagues around the world going, hey, do you guys have a monkey problem? And they're like, no, we don't have a monkey problem. So anyway, so I'm talking to this kid and he goes, yeah, I've come up with a monkey solution and it's a scare tiger. And I go, what's a scare tiger? He goes, well, you heard of a scarecrow? And I go, yeah. He goes, it's like a tiger. Looks like a tiger and it roars and monkeys are scared of tigers. And I'm like, but monkeys are smart. They figure that out. And he goes, no, 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 no. We're working on this prototype where we use like sensors and mechanics so that the thing will know when there's monkeys moving around and then the tiger will move and then roar. And I was like, wow. does it work? And he goes, we're working on it. Stay tuned. So uh, like that's a that's a perfect example. They're they're keeping this sort of historical thing, but they're using newer technologies. And one of the things the country's trying to do is they're moving towards a national service model where they're going to ask all um, kids when they graduate high school to go work in one of three disciplines. So they'll do army training for three months, and then they'll spend nine months either working in um, uh, like smart ag or cybersecurity or what was the third one? I forget what the third one was. So. It, it is one of these things like modernize, but maintain our cultural identity. And and so far, you know, there's, there, I'm sure there's tension with it, but it's not like where you go to some of these other developing economies and everyone's just chasing the dollar and slapping up a Starbucks on every corner and all that stuff. So I, it'll be awesome to see if they can pull it off. I, I you know, I'm, I'm right there with them in the fields helping make this happen. So I'm committed to it. And and it seems like having seen photos and talked to people and read that they sort of have developed a relationship with, if I could call it consumerism, that's very different than uh, what we have in, in much of the United States and the Western world. Yeah, I think the what I see is sort of um, a level of, of gratitude and content. And it doesn't mean that they wouldn't appreciate like a new bike, but they're content with the bike they have and they're happy to have a bike. Whereas, you know, for us, you know, we're, we're so consumer driven that, you know, we get a bike and then somebody else has a better bike and you got to upgrade your bike and, and do all the shit. And they're not, they're, they're just kind of content, which I think we all have a lot to learn from that. I shit. I know I do. And what's, uh, how would you describe the standard of living? It's, it's a developing economy, right? So, you know, there are definitely people that don't have, um, running water, don't have electricity. And, and the, the towns, um, they call everything a town. So it's like Timpu Town and Paro Town. And, but, it, but they're, you know, Timpu is probably the biggest city. It probably has about 100,000 people in it. You know, there's condominiums and there's hotels and there's, uh, you know, it's just like, like any other developing economy city you would go to. But as you go out to the rural areas, it, it becomes much more rural. But, you know, once again, I think it's all, it's all a state of mind and, you know, I, I talk to these guys because, you know, I'm out in the fields and, and uh, you know, talking to the workers and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I live over there in that little shack. And you're like, oh, how do you like it? You, no, it's great. I wake up and I have this beautiful view and I have my family and I get the opportunity to work here in this beautiful garden and this beautiful field. And you're like, wow, that's, you know, can I send my son over here? Who are you, man? <laughs> I'm going to teach him how to have a little gratitude, you know? And so they really are that way. Yeah. I mean... Uh, they're people, right? So, you know, like anything else, there's, there's going to be some, some envy and some greed and some fighting. And I'm, I'm sure I, I, I don't necessarily see a ton of this, but I'm, I'm sure it's there, but it's, it doesn't seem to be the driving factor. Yeah. Now I've known some entrepreneurs and some executives and some CEOs in my life who have had great careers and then they decide they, uh, you know, they spend a bunch of time in Sonoma or Napa or in some cases in Tuscany, uh, I know a lawyer who, uh, who who's done some amazing things there. But wherever it is, um, they get to a point in their entrepreneurial business career where they've made some money and they enjoy these places and they love great wine and so forth and so on. And they say, fuck it, I'm going to um, start or buy a, a vineyard and, and a winery or both. And away they go. I met, I, f I think her name is Julie, I f but she's one of the Coors great granddaughters and she's 
owns a winery in Napa and this and that. And so, so this is a, this is a fun dream that a lot of people seem to have. And I, I can have my fantasies about how, how fun it might be owning a beautiful winery in Tuscany or Napa or whatever. So I think this is, it's sort of like the dream of being a New York Times bestselling fiction writer, you know, like John Grisham or something. And these are, these are fun dreams that a lot of us have. And sometimes we can visit these dreams and have a nice weekend at a nice winery uh, and then get back to our regular life. And so I can relate to that part of it. Uh, but how do you go from sort of that to, we're going to do this and we're going to do it in Bataan. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, that, you're not the first person that's, that's pointed that out to me. So I'll give you a little bit of background. I, you know, I'm super, super passionate about wine. And I, a number of years ago, started working towards becoming the 45th American in the U.S. to qualify as what's called a master of wine. There's about 400 in the world, about 44 in the U.S. And I started doing it just because I had a, a like a real deep passion for it. And as a part of that, I traveled to as many global wine regions as I possibly could to just to learn about them. And so I'm pursuing this. So I've been I've been all over the world to to wineries. Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, France, Germany, Italy, you know, in the U.S., Canada, like just been all over. Canada. Nobody, most people yeah, don't there's think. there's a big wine scene in Canada, believe it or not. Well, I know. I'm originally from Canada, but most people don't know that. And they're like, Canadian wine? I thought you guys made beer. <laughs> and cider, right? And whiskey. Yeah, a lot of rye. Yeah. My, uh, my, my uh, grandmother and um, great aunt used to like a rye and ginger every night. Yeah, actually, I have a, one of my clients is a winery in Canada. What part of the country? They're actually a, a pretty big um, conglomerate. They have wineries in BC and Niagara and Nova Scotia and kind of all over the place. Beautiful. Okay, so here you are. You're visiting vineyards and wineries all over the place, including places that most people wouldn't necessarily think are good wine areas. And over what period of time, uh, Michael, are you visiting all these different regions? And, and so oh, years years and, and and not not out of any desire to do anything other than just learn i'm just fascinated with it i'm passionate about it so on and so forth so i've i've had this opportunity to see all of these different wine regions so fast forward to bhutan i'm in bhutan i'm running this marathon and all i see is these beautiful terraces and these amazing crops cereal fruit trees everywhere like the whole place just looks like garden of eden kind of shit and so i'm like holy fuck where are the vineyards i need to find the vineyards because i want to check this out and so i'm running around and i'm asking everybody where's the vineyards where's... and they're all looking at me like what are you talking about so uh i finally end up at this at this dinner with some senior ranking officials and i say hey where's the vineyards and they go we don't have any and so i get affronted i'm like how is this possible? You guys have this, you've been given this gift of a, of a country. This is perfect for growing grapes that will rival any of the other regions of the world. You guys must do this. If you don't do this, you are like hiding your talents. You know, the old Bible story, you're burying them. Like you must do this. And they're like, well, why do you think this? And so I'm, you know, immediately I'm not mindful of who I'm talking to. I'm just being passionate. I start like rattling stuff off. Like if you got this soil, you got these microclimates, you got this terroir. And, uh, and so I'm like, you should do this. And I had no desire to, I just wanted them to do it so I could, so I could see it. So I went home and I wrote up like this white paper. I did a bunch of research and climate comparisons and soil analysis. And I wrote this white paper that says, this is why Bhutan should grow wine or grow grapes and make wine. And I mailed it, I emailed it to the, the government folks there. And that was the last I heard of it. I was like, okay, 10 years from now, I'm going to go to Bhutan and I'm going to go wine tasting. And I'm going to think, oh, I had a little piece of making this happen. Maybe they'll put a little plaque with my name on it somewhere. <laughs> so that's how this thing gets going. Well, a couple of years later, I go back to Bhutan to run the marathon again. Cause I had so much fun with it the first time. And uh, I get back there and that, all these government people wanted to talk to me. And they're like, are you the guy that wrote the wine paper? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, do you believe this? I go, absolutely. And they go, why do you think that? And I go, well, because I'm, you know, I'm studying to become a master. I've been all over the world. I've studied this in depth. I looked at what you guys have here. I guarantee you that this place would be amazing for you. And they go, all right, well, what do we do next? 
I go, no problem, man. I'm a business consultant. I, I got this. So I go home and I write a 10-year business plan. But all the work streams, I even drafted the wine laws for the country. Like the good Deloitte consultant that you've been trained to be, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I write this 10-year business plan and I, I, I draft the wine laws for the country. I set up their wine like um, geographic indication system and I email it all to them. I go, hey, do this and let me know when it's done because I want to come drink some wine. And, uh, and they come back to me and they're like, this is amazing. We totally want to do this, um, but we can't do it by, by, on our own. Will you do it with us? And I was like, oh, shit. Like, you realize how inconvenient, you know, geographically inconvenient the Himalayas are to Los Angeles. I guess that's not an easy trip. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, look, I believe that Bhutan is probably the last undeveloped wine frontier in the world that has kind of the organic set up already. Everywhere else that can grow grapes in the world already does and has for thousands of years in some cases. Right now, we're trying to go to like Sweden and figure out how to, how to make grapes grow in Sweden because we're running out of spots. We're in Peru and we're tricking the vines with chemicals to, to make them think winter is summer and stuff like that. Bhutan's not. It's just this organic open environment. I'm like, this is probably the fucking coolest wine project that anyone could ever do in today's you know time this is what andrey shilichev did with napa back in the 1800s this is what some of the guys did in australia back in the 1850s like i get to be that guy i'm like i'm fucking all in let's do this that's how it started wow and so uh remind me michael it's so great <laughs> and i got a million questions but so what year was the Fuck it year. I'm all in. You're the wine guy. They want to do it with you. You decide you want to do it with them. When, when, how long ago was that? Remind me. Uh, I want to say that was maybe 2017. 2017. So really not that long ago. No. So once all this, you have this sort of bromance with a bunch of the folks uh, over there and you say, yeah, we're in. Then what happens? There was a lot of questions about, you know, will grapes grow? And, and I basically said, like, look, I guarantee you that grapes will grow here. I am 100% convinced. What we don't know is you have all these different microclimates is like which grapes will grow the best in which spot. So let's go plan a bunch of stuff and see what happens. And we know not all of it's going to work. So we, we worked with the, the government over there and we found um, six different vineyard sites in different altitudes. So like our lowest one is at maybe 3,000 feet. Our highest one is at maybe 9,000 feet. Um, in different, uh, different soil types, different rainfalls, different orientations, you know, like slope versus flat. And then we went and we planted nine different grapes or nine different varieties at each one of the vineyards. So at every location you planted all nine to just, you didn't try to sort of decide, well, you know, maybe the Chardonnay grapes here and the, uh, whatever you just planted all of them in all regions just to see, see what would happen. Yep. And we experimented like, like some of them we planted 10 feet apart. Some of them we planted five feet apart. Some of them we planted in uh, like rows for trellising and some we planted on like hillsides and bush train. Like, we don't know. Let's dial in, let's figure out what works well, where, and that's what we're in the process of right now. And so do we have any conclusions emerging or where are we in the discovery of uh, what nine grapes work at which of the six sites and in, in what kind of configurations? Yeah. So jury's still out a little bit. So if you think about grapevines, grapevines after three years may start producing fruit. Sometimes it takes four or five if the site's a little more challenging. So we have a couple sites where we're three years in and they're producing fruit and you can kind of get a sense of what it is. Some of the more challenging sites, which are a higher altitude ones, have not started to produce fruit yet. So we don't know. Yeah. Are there unpredictable or, or maybe niche oriented things? Like, for example, one of the niches uh, I'm sure you know in Canada is ice wine. And Canada has become one of the top places for ice wine. So are you experimenting in higher elevations with those types of things? Or sort of how are you thinking about what might sort of what, what grapes in what regions might, might work at this stage? So I'm thinking long term about the 
capacity to sell the wine as well. And so like, it's entirely possible that, I don't know, some obscure varietal like Chocolina or Greco de Tufo or something is perfect for Bouton. But it's already going to be interesting enough trying to sell a bottle of Boutonese Cabernet. I can't imagine trying to sell a bottle of Boutonese Chocolina, right? So our my hope is that the varietals that we've planted, which are reasonably standard, you know, Cab, Malbec, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, that we'll figure out ways to uh, to make that work. We're about to plant another 75 acres or so in the springtime. And I'm bringing over some additional new varieties to start messing around with, one of which is Riesling. Riesling does great in Germany where it's cold and Bhutan's got its share of cold. So like, we are trying to dial some of that in as well. I'm also experimenting with some Tempranillo and some Sangiovese. So we'll, we'll see. I, I think ideally, you know, we, you come up with three or four that work fantastically well, but even if we only came up with one or two, like, I mean, Argentina has cornered the market on Malbec and, you know, they produce some other stuff, but the Malbec is what they're known for. And that's what they're great at. And if that's, if we ended up with, I don't know, Bhutanese Merlot is the best Merlot in the world. Fuck it. We'll just grow a lot of Merlot. So, and this is where I was sort of thinking next, you know, as a marketer and a category designer, niching down is always a wise thing certainly to think about if not actually do um, to become known for a specific niche so that's sort of one vector in my head and the other one michael that i'd like to sort of kick around in combination is and i'm obviously no expert other than being a a massive super consumer of uh, alcoholic (laughs) beverages (laughs) that's what i'm a master at (laughs) but um One of the fascinating marketing category design decisions that I always look to is what category position are our spirits makers, alcohol makers going to take? And what I mean specifically is uh, if you look at what what has happened historically in Europe, they position and market around the region. So champagne, Uh, of course, in, in whiskey that I love, there's scotch whiskey. Right. And you can't call it scotch unless it's from Scotland. Right. And, and so they lead with the region. But then, of course, it appears to me that over time, particularly as American wines have taken off, the, a lot of the American uh, winemakers began to educate consumers on, well, it's, it's not a it's not a uh, Chianti you're drinking. It's a Sangiovese you're drinking. So started to sort of position the grape and then the grape from the region um, as opposed to leading with the region, so to speak. And so I'm very fascinated with this sort of decision on how you're going to niche down to become known for being legendary at a certain thing and, and what sort of dimensions you use to, to sort of carve out the category positioning. Uh, and so I'm curious, A, what you think about that sort of broadly in the, in the alcohol business, and then obviously specifically as you're starting to think about things for what you're doing in Bhutan. Yeah, so I think the branding by geographic region, I think, is is very important if there is geographic specificity. So, like, we need to be able to say, like, the Sauvignon Blanc that's grown in the Loire Valley of France is different than the Sauvignon Blanc that's grown in the in Napa, and and so we want to to celebrate that and and market it as such. I think the challenge with that on the global wine scene is that if you don't happen to know that Puy Fume is a town in the Loire that makes Sauvignon Blanc, you're never going to pick, like, you, you just don't know. And so the being able to brand by grape allows the uneducated consumer access. But it's an interesting question. And as the guy who's responsible for deciding how an entire country does this stuff, it's something I think a lot about and you get sort of one chance, right. To, to set it up and, you know, don't fuck it up. (laughs) Yeah. I think where we've landed at least directionally today is that our plan is to, to brand by grape augmented by the, you know, the country of Bhutan. And my dearest hope is that, at some point in the future, we start actually branding by areas within Bhutan. So, you know, the Lingmatong region versus the Yusupong region. Um, and that there would be 
differences. And you could say, oh, the Yusupong uh, region produces these really extracted reds and the Limitong produces light fruity reds or vice versa, whatever it happens to be. We're, we're a far cry away from that. Um, but, you know, that's something, you know, maybe my grandkids <laughs> will, will dial in. You know, wine, wine is not a, a game for the, the easily, the quickly gratified. This is not write an algorithm and 10 seconds later, sell it to Google and become a billionaire. This is, this is the exact opposite of that. <laughs> this is spend all your money and time now so that your grandkids might, might have some money. But, and they might think you were cool. But in the wine game, like to be given a palette. I mean, I kind of think about it like, let's say you were the world's best graffiti artist. And they gave, and they, the Chinese government said, hey, we want you to paint the whole wall go do it and you could do whatever you wanted. Wow. And you had this opportunity and everyone was going to see it for forever. Like that's the ultimate in graffiti art, right? So this is, in my opinion, like the ultimate and, and wine geek does. Here's, here's a country, here's a palette, figure it out. From the beginning, you're designing the whole industry for the country. Yep. You are the minister of wine. Yep. So um, I want to go back to something you said about grape and then region. And look, I don't know shit about this whole uh, mega category, so I could be totally wrong. But I did want to nudge you a little bit on it. If you look at sort of a huge contributor of success of any new venture, it is getting the category design right. And in specific, being able to differentiate, and of course, the root word of differentiate that a lot of people forget is different, right? And the delineation between different and better. Most entrepreneurs make the mistake of having a our shit is better than their shit discussion. And they think that once the world does the taste test, they win. And Pepsi spent five decades proving that doesn't that doesn't work. And yet most people still fucking do it. Right. As opposed to different, which is uh, one of my favorite examples in the beverage category is um, a five hour energy. They come out and they say, well, we're not a Red Bull and we're not a Gatorade and we're not a bottled water. We're, an en we're not an energy drink. We're an energy shot. And they create a new category, highly differentiated. They price it in a very differentiated way. They put it in a differentiated location in the store. They're the only company in history to have five products at the Walmart checkout ever. And then when Red Bull tries to create the Red Bull shot, after five hour energy becomes a billion dollar brand inside a multi-billion dollar category, of course, five hour energy hands Red Bull their ass because they dominate the category. The category queen takes two thirds of the economics and that's what happened. So long story longer, Michael, the Bhutan is so unique and so like it's this magical fairyland in people's mind. I and mean, maybe it's just my mind. I don't know. And you see the photos and you see the images of the people and their faces look so incredible. And, and the landscape is so breathtaking and the architecture built into the sides of these hills and the whole thing. All that, uh, what, what that says to me as a category designer is maybe region first, grape second. And wrap the category and, and then the brand inside of this mystical impression that so many of us have of, of what an enchanting place this is. But I'm, I say all that as a sort of a, a salvo and to get your reaction. Yeah. So there is no question that whatever product comes out of this is going to be differentiated because it is from Bhutan. I don't give a shit about making Merlot, right? There's enough Merlots out there. But to make a Bhutanese Merlot, now we're onto something. And I think, you know, just the size of the country, this is never going to be the next Bordeaux, right? If we can plant, if we can get 2,000 acres producing over the next 10 years, which is what our business plan shows, that would make us, you know, 1 20th the size of Napa Valley. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that would make us 1 ninth the size of Ontario, Canada, in terms of you know, vineyards under vine. So our, our volumes are never going to be huge. And the way the business model works is that people are going to pay that premium to have the opportunity to get this bottle that's from this magical fairyland. And, you know, we've talked a lot about branding. We're, we're actually working on, on using a Bhutanese 
phrase as the the name of the of the wine, um, which in and of itself will just kind of jump out on the on the supermarket shelf or the liquor store shelf or the wine shop shelf because it's it's going to be something you're just not familiar with. You'll stop people like, "What the hell is that? Where's that from?" And then Bouton, big on the label, but also the name of the grape because I think that there's there's the people who are geeky about wine that are going to see Bouton and want to try it. And then there's people who are kind of curious, but not uber, you know, Somalia geeky. And they'll see the Bhutan, but if it says Bhutan Cabernet, then they'll be like, oh, I'll try a Cabernet from Bhutan. Oh, it's 150 bucks. Yeah, this is the magical fairyland place. But I, I think, you know, just based on our volumes and based on my connections in the global wine world, I get called from sommeliers and, and you know, MW wine students all, all the time going, when is this coming out? When is this coming out? I want to try it. So I think we'll probably be in a situation where we're, you know, we're allocating a little bit to this country and a little bit to that country. And it's going to go into restaurants and go to some uber geeky places. I don't think this is a, sort of an Albertsons kind of grocery store option ever. No, no Costco deals coming down. No, I <laughs> probably not. Yeah. But uh, especially when you think about like the restaurants that pride themselves on the, the broadest wine lists, you know, how many times have you gone into a nice restaurant and they're, you know, they have it organized by country and you're always flipping through it going, wow, Poland. I didn't know they made a Poland wine like that. That's the person that wants to have that Bhutanese cab on the menu. And I'm the guy that's going to be sitting in that restaurant going, shit, Bhutan makes a cab. I'm trying that. And so how long before, uh, me and my friends and family are sitting in a, in a restaurant in Santa Cruz that has, is known for a good wine list from multiple places around the world, including eclectic places. Will I crack open that wine list and see uh, a Bhutanese cab or, or any, is it Bhutanese? Is that how you'd say it? Bhutanese. Yeah. Bhutanese. Yeah. Uh, how long before that, that reality becomes true, Michael? So we're going to have our first real harvest this year. We had some grapes last year, but we'll have our first real harvest this year. I'll kind of hold judgment until I actually see the fruit. But my guess is that this year we'll be experimenting with different vineyards and different blends and trying to trying to dial it in. So probably 2021 or 2022 would be the first year that we would produce. And then the whites would be available in early 2023 and the reds would be available sort of at the end of 2023. Whether or not they'll make it to Santa Cruz, you know, <laughs> who knows? So I, I got folks in, in London and New York who are waving their hands pretty high and loud right now for their allocation. Yeah, I would bet. I would bet those would be probably wiser places to start. <laughs> yeah. So twenty late 2022 into 2023, there will be restaurants in the United States where we can buy your wine. Knock on wood, my friend. And, and I'm curious to get into a little bit of the, you know, how did you get this deal done? Take me inside some of the kind of business dynamics of doing this with, uh, is it the Bhutanese government you've done it with? Yeah. It's difficult to do business in the country of Bhutan as a foreign entity. And this is part of their cultural preservation thing. So um, you have to have a Bhutanese citizen as a partner. So we have two Bhutanese citizens um, that are our partners. We have a Bhutanese legal entity um, that we set up. And then we have a US-based legal entity that is uh, an owner in the in the Bhutanese entity. And then there are, let's just call it an enormous amount of paperwork <laughs> to to deal with in terms of you know, getting the environmental clearances, you know, you're talking about a carbon negative country. So you can't just go out and start cutting down trees because you want to make space for vines. It also has to be, they're so focused on the community and the people that whatever you do has to be good for the community and the community in which you're going to put a vineyard, they have to be supportive of it. So you have to have a town meeting and you have to have them vote. And so then you have to worry about, you know, your wastewater and, and, um, and it's a Buddhist country. So you can't, kill anything so your pest management protocols you know have to be well thought out it's also they're on track to become the world's first 100 percent organic country um they're trying to have every single crop every single vertical all organic so you know you have to kind of think about how you're going to bring those methods in and and, you, and every step requires approval so it it's it's been um I would tell you there is no possible way 
I could have done this without the help of my partner or my partners in, in Bhutan. Like, like they, I, I don't even know how to navigate some of the stuff that they're navigating. I, I, I don't, don't even know who I would talk to, but, you know, the Ministry of Economic Affairs has to approve the business side. The Ministry of Agriculture has to approve the agriculture side. The, the Ministry of whatever else, education, has to figure out how you're going to educate people and do knowledge transfer and, you know, grow viticulturists in the country. Everybody has a say. And I think, I think it's the right answer. It's just that an enormous amount of work on the front end to get it set up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been working on this for years now and and it's finally starting to get momentum and we're about to pull the trigger like i said on planting another 75 acres which gives us a pretty good size you know that's a maybe a 10,000 15,000 case a year winery that's that's pretty decent volumes yeah now i'm curious about the whole this whole thing about working with the government you know you th- think about the experiences that you would have in a country like the united states or pretty much throughout the Western world, setting up a business like this. And when I hear you say those things, it would be easy to think about those as government agencies and departments putting roadblocks in the place uh, or or in place for you. You know, sometimes um, entrepreneurs here in the U.S. feel the government is working Mm -hmm. against them, not trying to help them. But I, I would imagine you tell me that because they sort of raised their hand and said, hey, Mr. Guy who wrote the paper, why don't you come here and help us that that they're not trying to be bureaucratic in a negative way, but maybe bureaucratic in a way that is helping you stay in alignment with their values and what matters, but getting it done at the same time. But given you want to take all sort of a 360 degree, very broad view of this business it just takes longer than it would somewhere else. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Or, or how, how do you think about sort of the tension between the regulations and the entrepreneurship? Yeah, so my, my experience has been there's been zero tension whatsoever. It's more like, um, imagine you had a big family and you had a backyard. And, you know, one person wanted to put in a swimming pool and another person wanted to put in a half pipe. Another person wants to set up a, you know, a soccer thing or whatever. And we wanted like, what's the best use of this? And, how do we do it and make everybody happy? We have taken a, a very collaborative approach and said, look, this doesn't work if it's the Mike Jurgens show. This works if it's the Bhutanese country saying, we want to become relevant on, on the wine space. And we believe we have this magical terroir that we can make something amazing and share it with the world. And so you know, we sort of invited everybody into the tent and like, help us do this. And everyone's got really good things to say and bringing different perspectives to it. And I've not experienced tension at all. But what I have experienced is just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in the tent. And so you're, you know, you're having these conversations. But if you think about like, here's, here's some of the things that Bhutan as a country wants to do. And I recognize I don't speak for the country, but my observation is number one, they want to share how magical Bhutan is with the world. So they they want products that are branded Bhutan that, that people in other countries can, can have and experience a little bit of Bhutan. There's no product better than that than wine. No. Like you, you have this, you put it in your body, you taste it, you immerse your senses in it, and it gives you a sense of place, or it should anyways. Lots of wineries fucking up. Hmm. And, and you feel wine's a product like that that say, I don't, know, I don't know why this is in my head, but chocolate isn't or some other wonderful product that most of us love. I would, I would say so. I mean, if you think about how many magazines are dedicated to chocolate and how many giant parties do they have every year that are chocolate parties and how many people that do you know that goes, God, you should come to my house and check out my chocolate collection. I'm super passionate about it. I just spent a million dollars building the world's best chocolate collection. Like, it's just not the same, right? Um, so so it, it meets that need. Yeah. And it's 100% aligned with what they want to do. I mean, they could probably make, I don't know, transistor radios or some bullshit like that. Um, but you know, talking about growing uh, a fruit, which they already do, some of the best in the world, and just growing a different fruit and making it one of the best in the world, totally aligned. Also, they have this challenge with the the youth, and the youth are, you know, getting on YouTube and they're saying, I, I don't want to work on this rice farm anymore. I want to go in the city and, you know, code some Python scripts. And so to to create a new agricultural vertical that is way more appealing 
than rice also fits with with what they want to do. You're talking about increasing biodiversity for for the country, um, which you know they're highly supportive of. There's also um, in the wine world, there's a whole lot of emphasis on what's happening with climate change. So, like you talked about champagne, champagne's about to get fucked because champagne has made uh, their entire model based on the fact that they are on the very margin of grape growing. And now all of a sudden it got warmer and oh, not on the margin. Am, am I right that the, the champagne grape is having to go, go north because of the climate change and therefore the region of champagne is not the region to grow champagne anymore? Is that sort of the net net of it? Am I reading this right? Yeah. And, and actually really what's happening is there's a soil play to it. And so there's this Kimmeridgean white chalk in champagne that's also in England. That's the White Cliffs of Dover. It's the same underlying band of soil. So they're all buying stuff in England. So champagne production is going to move to England. And then it's not called champagne anymore, is it? And by the way, if you know anything about history between the French and the English, there's something about that that is, I don't know what the right adjective would be, but there's something, let's just call it fascinating about the fact that um, the, the English are going to start making champagne for the French. <laughs> right? the, the irony of that is palpable. <laughs> it's really something. I mean, <laughs> so, so when you think about that, like if climate change is really starting to impact these regions, imagine being able to be in a country where I have every climactic zone from jungle to glacier all in one area and we can move production very easily. So if you, if you find that such and such grape is really on fire and it sort of fits with everything you're doing and you say, okay, we're going to niche down on this grape as if not the main one, certainly one of the main ones, if it's, you know, I don't, you tell me which one it might be. And then we find over time because of global warming that um, we need to move vineyards 200 feet up or whatever no problem. We, we got, we got, we got the jungle and we got the Himalayas. Where do you want to go, Jimmy? We can go anywhere you want. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's we'll go right down the street. I, I actually, we were scouting vineyard sites. This was maybe a year ago and I'm sitting there and I'm on this farmer's land and we're sitting there. It's a beautiful Valley, steep drop down to the river. And we're looking at the sites about 20 acres. And I asked the guy like, Hey, um, what's your rainfall like here? He goes, Oh, it doesn't rain here. And I go, dude, I can see Paro town. From where I'm standing right now, I can see it. It's not that far away. And that place gets 800 to 1,000 millimeters of rain a year. You're four miles away from that. And he goes, he goes, oh, yeah, it rains like crazy over there. I go, well, what happens? He goes, well, we're in this valley. And you see that rock right there. The rain comes up and it hits that rock and it stops. And we kind of get a little bit of mess. Uh, so, like, you have all these crazy microclimates literally right next to each other. Yeah, fantastic. What's, what's interesting to me is that, um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a geeky uh, wine guy, you know, with a, you know, some, some business savvy, but Louis Vuitton, Louis Hennessy, who does this for a living, they started a project right on the other side of where we're doing it in China. And they're producing a Cabernet that they call Al Yun, and it sells for about 300 bucks a bottle very similar terroir to ours it just happens to be across the border into china they've dumped a ton of money into it so like i gotta look at this and go if louis vuitton way hennessy thinks it's a good spot i'm probably not completely out of my gourd to think that this is going to be amazing <laughs> and i'm also curious michael what have you learned about being an entrepreneur being a creative person being a business person you have this whole career in the management consulting industry, right? And now you're doing this thing. What are your key learnings? So I think that, you know, now we're sort of getting into the philosophy of, of life. And, and I think what I have found, and this is going to sound a little trite and cliche, but like if you're passionate about something and you're doing it because you're passionate about it, not because you think it's going to give you a billion dollars or, uh, you know, elevate you to the next level or whatever, inevitably you're more successful with it. Um, and you have a hell of a lot more fun doing it. And, and so at the end of the day, I, I have a phrase that I use at this stage of my life, I'm done chasing anything. I only want to do epic shit with cool people. And if it's not both of those things simultaneously, I'm out. I have, you know, limited time on this planet. And so I think if, if you just keep doing epic shit with cool people, 
maybe the money will come, maybe it won't, but regardless, you're going to have an amazing life and, and everybody you know is going to look at you and go, I want that guy's life. You know, it's interesting that you say this. I've been raging against the evil of the hustle porn star industry for quite a while now. And you have these idiots out there convincing younger entrepreneurs that quote unquote hustle is the most important uh, word in the English language. And then, you know, there's all these idiots. I'm not going to name all of them, but you know, one of them comes out and says, uh, nobody ever died of working too hard. And I'm like, Oh really? In Japan, they have a word for it. You dumb fuck. Um, <laughs> and yeah. so, so this, and, and look, I'm somebody who had to work very hard as an entrepreneur. I started my first company at 18 and I worked my ass off for 20 years. So of course you're going to have to work hard. Of course you're working hard, quote unquote, in this endeavor. But the reality is our business is about our life, not the other way around. And it feels like you tell me that you are building a business that is fulfilling to you in your life and to be overly corny. Like I've lived on the West coast too long. Like it's a, this is a soul first kind of a business. Is it not? You know, I think if, if at the end of the day, we created an amazing bottle of wine and we changed the tide of, you know, what Bhutan does as a country from a, from a product perspective. Um, and we had an amazing time doing it. I win. I fucking win at life. And if I also make a bunch of money doing it, then that's a double win. But if I, if I only make the money and I don't get all the other stuff, that's a loss in my book. Yeah. It's interesting. It reminds me of um, you know, Elon Musk has been very forward on his skis about the mission of Tesla. And one of the things that he said is that Tesla's mission is to get us off fossil fuels and that if we get off fossil fuels and Tesla fails, then the company will have been successful. Right. So it's kind of like that, right? It, it's exactly like I that. I mean, you're trying to make a and, difference uh, to a country. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, don't think that that level of pressure is not lost on me. I think about this all the time. Like this, don't fuck it up. Like, You've been granted this. They, of all the fucking wine geeks in the world, they picked you to, to do this and they give you this magical thing. And, you know, don't fuck it up. And that's what I'm trying to not, that's what I'm trying to do is to not fuck it up. But at the same time, like build something amazing. And I, I, I think how wonderful would it be to see, you know, blind taste competitions in the future have, you know, Somalis going, oh boy, I, I think this is a Bhutanese Merlot. <laughs> like, <laughs> that would just be amazing. Stories about it in magazines and people drinking it and loving it and talking about Bhutan and wanting to go visit Bhutan and, and see the vineyards and meet the people that are doing this. I mean, it's, it's just that I, sometimes I just get overwhelmed, like, like just thinking about it the fact that I've been granted this, this opportunity. And so back to your whole point, like, I don't think about this as work. I was doing this shit as a hobby <laughs> for years before this ever happened. Yeah. It's like that moment as a writer, when somebody says they're going to pay you to write a book and you're like, what, 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 what? <laughs> you're going to what? <laughs> or as a podcaster, when somebody says, well, we're going to, we're going to sponsor your podcast. You're going to pay me to, to do this thing that I do for free, that I've thrown a whole bunch of time and money into that I would continue to do for free. You're going to, that's pretty fucking awesome. I don't know how that happened. Right. And so now but, you, but, you get paid to be the Henry Ford of, of wine for a country. Yep. And you know, it would be, it would be fantastic if we made a bajillion dollars. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I would, I would think that is awesome. But in the Tesla model, if we didn't, but we, you know, change the direction of a country. And I mean, I, I view, you know, if you think about this 50 years from now, you know, and there's, there's family farms and they're growing grapes and they're selling them to the local wineries there. And, and the whole country gets to participate in the prosperity of it. And they, it changes the, the, the opportunities for the children and everything. I mean, fuck, come on. And by the way, I'm, not, I'm a capitalist. I'm not an altruistic guy, but that's pretty fucking cool. 
You're sounding like, um, I, I'm sure you've heard this phrase, uh, and I, I think it's it's emerging as a great idea, a conscious capitalist. <laughs> I, I hate, I hate the, the, uh, the, the whatever the new age branding of what we're supposed to be as yeah. capitalists. I think it's, I, I, I'll just come back to my epic shit with cool people. That's what I want to do. And if, and if I can make a bunch of money doing it, great. If not, I still have the kind of life where I get to tell amazing stories and have amazing experiences. Amen. Hallelujah. Michael, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I mean, if I could, maybe I could just plug a couple of the other projects I've got going on. Sure. What are you What else are you doing? So I also have a rum company called SoCal Rum, and we make a light rum for cocktails. And we just got awarded the highest point score in history for a light rum, 95 points. It is this just spectacular um, rum. We make it in Southern California. And I would encourage anybody who, if they're into tiki or rum cocktails or whatever, seek this out. It's super affordable. SoCal Rum, and that's what it's called, SoCal Rum? So Calram, 20 bucks a bottle, man. You won't get a better quality for value deal on any other distilled spirit in the world, I don't think. One of my favorite expressions is uh, drinking rum in the morning doesn't make you an alcoholic. It makes you a pirate. Makes you a pirate. <laughs> so what you can't see, Chris, is I'm sitting here at my bar and my bar is covered with stickers. Actually, I'm literally right in front of me. Do you have that sticker on your bar? <laughs> Yeah, there it is. Drinking rum before 10 a.m. doesn't make you an alcoholic, makes you a pirate. We need to, hey, you know what we need to do? Do you guys have SoCal rum t shirts that say that on them? We have some rum t shirts, but not that say the pirate thing. That's a good idea. Yeah, hey, that's why you're the marketing guy and I'm the the, uh, alcoholic, I suppose. I would like to place an order for one of those when you get those, when you get those done up, Michael. (laughs) I will, I will send you, I'll send you a, a hoodie. I'll send you a whole pirate outfit. Yeah, I want the whole outfit. Exactly. And uh, where where so, can I buy SoCal rum? Uh, it's basically just sold in California and Oklahoma right now, but you can get it online from um, a number of retailers. If you just go to the SoCal rum website, SoCalRum.com, there's links to where you can purchase it and have it shipped. Where we can try it. Okay. And anything else you got going on that I need to know about? Yeah. So the, the other thing maybe I'll, I'll, I'll plug, and this is a... Uh, if if you're interested in wine and you like reading fiction, I'm one of the only guys I know that's writing wine fiction. And I've written a few books about, about uh, wine fiction and they're very sort of hustle, Ocean's Eleven, heist kind of things related to high stakes gambling on wine. So if you're at all interested in that, um, feel free to check out Blinders or Double Blind uh, on Amazon. Um, that's under my pen name. Michael Amon, uh, or the Champagne Tales. If you like short stories, that's one of my favorite books that I've ever written in my life. It's really, really highly entertaining. So if you want to hear me geek out about, about wine and other milieus other than a podcast, check out some of my, my writing. And- so you you decided you were going to take your wine dorkness and channel it into writing uh, fiction under a pen name. That's what you just told me. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I As made it do. about like, and I made it like the total, the color of money, Ocean's Eleven, Hustle kind of stuff, which the kind of shit I want to read. So, so what are the names of the books again, Michael? Give them to me one more time. Uh, so Blinders, yep. Double Blind, and uh, The Champagne Tales. Awesome. So really highly entertaining reads, uh, but with a, a high high wine theme to that. Excellent. And we can include those in the show notes. Cause <laughs> oh, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Like, I didn't come on here to, to plug that stuff, but hey, I, listen, I love you're talking you're here, about and you thing. know, we're here to find out about the wild and crazy alcoholic world of Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, this has just been a delight. I really enjoyed uh, hanging out with you. And I will tell you, you, know, you have a standing invite. If you, uh, if you ever want to go to Bhutan, I can absolutely make that happen. You can stay at my place there. I can deal with the visa issues and I can if, if you want to check that off your bucket list just let me know we'll make it happen and we'll let you drink some wine be careful about saying that to me because um look I've traveled over six million miles on a plane in my life and I generally don't want to get on them anymore but the two places I really like to go outside the United States are Tuscany I love Tuscan Reds Chianti's Brunello's Barolo's especially Brunello's and then um 
I have had this fantasy of going there for a long time. And a good buddy of mine got married a couple years ago and he and his bride had their honeymoon there. And I saw a bunch of their photos and videos. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I've met some, some folks from there. So it's actually a place I really do want to go. So uh, be careful about inviting me because I'm going to show up. (laughs) I tied. That was a a sincere uh, invite. I, I'm such a fan of Bhutan that I like the more people I could share that with the, I'll do that all day long. Well, thank you. I've got a very nice house that you can stay at. I can manage all the government, you know, paperwork for you and come on over and hang out. I would love to. And the other thing I would love to do uh, when you're further along in the project, it would be great to have you back in whatever the appropriate amount of time is once you're kind of launched and up and running and more people can access the wine and, and learn more about the story as it continues to unfold. Because from a purely entrepreneurial point of view, you're doing something, uh, you're in very uncharted territory here. <laughs> yes, I am. So you're, you're in Santa Cruz, right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm up that way quite a bit, just, uh, well, pre-COVID anyways. But next time I get up that way, I'll, I'll ping you. Maybe we go out and drink some, uh, some Brunello and bullshit about this kind of stuff. I would love to do that. We have some extraordinary restaurants here. Um, and so uh, it would be my pleasure to bring the Brunello and we can pick a nice restaurant and uh, we, can, uh, we can get our cork dork on together. Totally. I say in Santa Cruz, the wineries are needed. They got pretty hammered in the fires there. It was really terrifying. And we actually had Chief Jonathan Cox on uh, fairly recently. He was the Cal Fire chief responsible for the fire here. It was called the CZU complex. And the job mm-hmm. that Cal Fire has done this fire season in our state is uh, beyond unimaginable. And the fact that they saved Santa Cruz and Scotts Valley uh, and most of the region, there was obviously certain things they couldn't save, but the job they did with less than 10% the resources they needed for most of the fire was truly inspiring. And they literally saved our town. I, I was watching the the videos of it and, and I was just crying because I, I couldn't, I couldn't fathom like if a fire came through Bhutan and burned down my vineyards, like I just can't imagine what what that would do to me emotionally. And I'm, I'm thinking there's some guy who's watching his vineyards burn and he's feeling that way right now. And I just, my heart goes out to all those guys. That's right. Well, as a matter of fact, we're about to make our third uh, contribution today to fire victims. It's just, it's just what horrible what they've suffered. And we've given a whole bunch of stuff away and we've written a cu- couple of very big checks and we're going to write another one because you know, the pain and suffering continues. And it was so disgusting here, Michael, for days and days and days. It was, uh, the air was unbreathable and it was snowing ash flakes so badly that um, it fucked up the paint jobs on the cars. Yeah. And it snowed, it snowed ash flakes for days and days and days. It was unbearable living here. Um, And the sky was this terrifying color and everything about it was terrifying. And so the job that um, our first responders did in this region um, was was literally uh, incredible. They saved countless lives. Yeah, and I would I would say for those people out there listening, you know, if you don't want to make a donation, but you're thinking about buying some wine, just go online, Google Santa Cruz Wine Association, and you'll see a bunch of wineries. Just buy some wine from them instead of from you know wherever you normally buy wine from. You know, help out in that way. It's not gonna yeah. Take anything extra out of your pocket, but it's going to help some people who desperately need it. So, yes, Amen, Hallelujah. All right, buddy, Michael, thank you so much. You're a legendary guy. I'm very grateful for this time, and uh, I can't, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to continuing the discussion. Namaste, my friend. Keep in touch. Namaste. Thanks, brother. Later. Well, there he is, the legendary Mike Jurgens. Michael, that was amazing. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And make sure that you subscribe to this podcast uh, wherever you're listening to us. We have some amazing episodes coming up soon, including uh, Brett Brett Gleason. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a podcast, you should learn how to talk. Brett is a um, legendary former uh, Navy SEAL, and he's got a brand new book out called, or a brand new book coming out called Embrace the Suck 
We also have an amazing episode with the world's number one tech analyst, Ray Wong, coming as we put uh, 2020 into context. And he talks about technology that we should be paying attention to heading into 2021 and a lot more. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get legendary podcasts. Now to succeed today, you need every possible advantage. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in, the world's number one cloud business system. With uh, businesses that run NetSuite have actually reported a 50% or more savings over the cost of running traditional on-premise systems. NetSuite allows you to eliminate cost upgrades, expensive infrastructure, and all the crap associated with software maintenance because NetSuite is purpose-built for the cloud. And with NetSuite, you get built-in dashboards and reports that allow you to get a handle on every part of your business from finance, sales, customer service, and more. Visit netsuite.com slash different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And in challenging times, legendary organizations turn data into doing. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. They are the leaders in data to everything, bringing uh, data to every question, every decision, and every action in a scalable and reliable way. With Splunk, you can investigate, monitor, and analyze, and most importantly, act on your data throughout the enterprise and beyond. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com, as in uh, splunk.com slash D to E. Also, uh, my friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Remember, your website is your face to the world, and it's often the first thing people see. Visit atre.net today. My friends at Spiro.ai want to help you use the power of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to sell more stuff. Visit spiro.ai today. And my friends at bottleneck.online are the world's leading distant assistant. So if you need a legendary assistant who's nowhere near you, visit bottleneck.online today. All right, we would like to thank the legendary Mike Jurgens. What a story. What a guy. Unbelievable. Also want to say a special shout-out to our mutual friend Josh Green of the Mather Group for putting us together. Thank you so much, Josh. And if you are a subscriber to Lockhead on Marketing, we have a legendary episode with Josh coming up soon about how you can take control over your digital presence and brand. That's on Lockhead on Marketing coming very, very soon. My friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit helping people dream, plan, and live their best life. Check out OneLifeFullyLive.org. And if you can make a difference, man, oh, man, people are hurting right now. So dig into your wallet, make a difference, throw some money at some food banks, some homeless shelters, some faith-based organizations, or any other organization that you think is making a difference right now because God knows people need it. All right, this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced and edited, leaded, <laughs> produced and edited by living podcast legend. He's the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. His podcast is called Grumpy Old Geeks. Check it out. It's one of my favorites. Lockhead.com and technical uh, legendariness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. Remember to listen to uh, Sarah Vaughn songs. Eddie Van Halen was right. Drink more wine. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Prius drivers, I'm talking to you. Remember to take two podcasts and email us in the morning, blackhole at lockhead.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. I really appreciate you investing a part of your life with us. Please stay legendary, stay safe, and until we're together again, follow your difference.